Alright, so back again. Here we are. It really is patio season now. It is patio season and we are coming to you live. Alive. From the public arts. <laughs> Barely alive. Fantastic. I'm Travis Cook, yeah. <laughs> I'm Andrea Sitlow. I'm Shane Hauser. That's right, everybody. <laughs> He's back. He's back. He He's couldn't keep away. No, he feels a real sense of ownership with the Ghost of Magic name, so um, yeah, so we couldn't refuse. Welcome. Thank you. Yeah, for sure. I'm tired to be here, but uh, likewise. Great. Yeah. So nice out. It's now nice I don't out. Want to read. So nice. See, well, good thing you've already done this reading, though. You've already read this book, resident expert on all things. Oh, I know this person. This is the uh, Thinking Hand. Yeah, yes. Thinking Hand that person. Guy. Yeah. Dalhousie loves this guy. Yeah, yeah. Which I did. You guys read the Thinking Hand? I did. Yeah. It was again. It was one of those things that I read, kind of like in a reading for pleasure mode, and yeah. I'm not sure. Yeah, exactly. What I got out of it, other than like, you should draw what you're thinking right <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah 100% I uh I read it in the summer before school just yeah. to try and prepare and it was like in this weird unknowing kind of panic mode where I was like I just got to finish this book and, uh, but yeah no it's it's good so this is gonna be exciting not the longest reading like our marathons from last week no, there's, Thank some, there's some weird yeah. pictures in here <laughs> oh yeah, we, we can have a really good. We'll time describe. Maybe we'll come up with the and congratulations to the winner of our last contest, oh, Natalie. Natalie. Yes, Rock for star. yeah. Maybe she found all those fan. little. She found People all the things. She all actually stuff. crunched the numbers on the windows question, and so as soon as I saw that she had an answer for that, it was pretty well determined that she was going to uh, oh, to take sure. this one by storm. Yeah. So again, congratulations, Natalie. Wow. Thank you for listening, and uh, yeah, good luck on the next one, <laughs> whatever it may be. Very impressive. It's awesome. Okay, so um, I guess we've talked a little bit about the author here and their other works. Did we actually say what we're reading? We're reading The Eyes of the Skin, in case we didn't say that. Eyes of the Skin by Jahani Palazma. Yes. Good job. Um, he is nice. one of Finland's most distinguished architects and architectural theorists, says the back of the book. Amazing. <laughs> Amazing. In all aspects of his theoretical and design practice, which includes architecture, graphic design, urban planning, and exhibitions. He places a consistent emphasis on the importance of identity, sensorial experience, and tactility. Ooh. Nice. Ooh. Yeah, that's, that's a great stuff. stuff. So, um, yeah, hopefully we get some sort of interruptions here and some weird, fun, wacky things happening since we're out in public doing the podcast. <laughs> Make this one a little bit more of a sizzler. You know, sensational. Get the fun going. I don't know. I don't know. That's uh, yeah. Sen- sensational. The senses. Ooh. Okay, on that this one. Is, yes, this is a non-visual experience. Okay. So close your eyes and listen in, and we'll tell you a tale. Uh, yeah. So um, we'll start off here with just reading some of these quotes from other people. I'm not sure if they fall in any category. It looks like they're... I only know one name here. So uh, we'll start with this one from Johann Wolfgang von Gothel. Goath. Goath. I think he was like a Goethe. romantic writer. A German writer. Who's not a romantic writer these days? I don't know. This is not these days, though. This is a while, while back. It's probably from the romantic period. Oh. I only know this because apparently Louis Kahn was influenced by the German romantics. I, I would like to dig deeper further. Yeah. <laughs> <It's not bad. laughs> uh, just like 
just before we get going on this Louis Kahn topic, didn't he have like a bunch of families or something like that? Wasn't he like a mall? One of those guys is like he had three children from three different women. Yes, solid. Really, uh, getting around <laughs> out a, there. Really yeah. a model father. <laughs> yeah, that's nice. Were. I haven't watched the documentary uh, My Architect or whatever, but that's by his son. Yeah, I, I believe. watched half of it. Oh. It was by his son, yeah. who was. He Sounds was the upsetting. least involved with. Yeah. 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 Like Peter Henry said one time, he's like, yeah, it's a movie. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't great. Yeah. But. Hmm. What things. an insubstantial thing to say. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Peter Henry. Yes. Oh, it's, it's, anyway. it's a movie. So, oh, this yeah. quote. Okay, yeah. So the ask. first quote, go with, the hands want to see, the eyes want to caress. Ooh. Nice. How true. What do we have next, Shane? How true. Yeah, Shane. Um... The Dancer Has His Ear in His Toes by Nietzsche. Nietzsche. <laughs> Nietzsche. How do you say it out loud? Nietzsche. Nietzsche. Sure. Jeez. Freddie Nietzsche. That's okay, the next one is Richard Morty. I don't know who that is. If the body had been easier to understand, nobody would have thought we had a mind. Ooh. Whoa. <laughs> Very nice. Take a minute to adjust that. Well, you do. Well, listen to this other one. Uh, this is George, right? Or is that... George. 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 The taste of the apple lies in the contact of the fruit with the palate, not in the fruit itself in a similar way. Poetry tries... Lies. Lies. Sorry, I've got my I sunglasses on here and everything. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There we go. Um, poetry lies in the meaning of poem and reader, not in the lines of symbols printed on the pages of the book. What is essential is the aesthetic act, the thrill, the almost physical emotion that comes with each reading. George, big on the poems. It's nice. We keep these things going. Yeah. One more. Um, how would the painter or poet express anything other than his encounter with the world? By Maurice Merleau-Ponty. Oh, Ponty. Mo Ponce. Well, this has been an exciting first page, yeah. So, yeah, we're reading part one, Vision and Knowledge. In Western culture, sight has historically been regarded as the noblest of the senses, and thinking itself, sorry, and thinking itself thought of it in terms of seeing. Already in classical Greek thought, certainty was based on vision and visibility. The eyes are more exact witnesses than the ears, wrote Heraclitus, Heraclitus nice. in one of his fragments. Plato regarded vision as humanity's greatest gift, and he insisted that ethical universals must be accept- accessible to the mind's eye. Aristotle, likewise, considered sight as the most noble of the senses, quote, because it approximates the intellect most clo- closely by virtue of the relative immaterial of its knowing, end quote. Since the Greeks, philosophical writings of all times have abounded with ocular metaphors to the point that knowledge has become analogous with the clear vision and light is regarded as the metaphor for truth. I know, Aquinas even applies the notion of sight to other sensory realms as well as to intellectual cognition. We're talking about Thomas Aquinas there, I believe. Who? Aquinas, like this philosopher, American philosopher, yeah. The impact of the sense of vision on philosophy is well summed up by Peter Sloterdijk. The eyes are the organic prototype of philosophy. Their enigma is that they not only can see, but are also able to see themselves seeing. 
This gives them a prominence among the body's cognitive organs. A good part of philosophical thinking is actually only eye reflex, eye dialectic, seeing oneself see. During the Renaissance, the five senses were understood to form a hierarchical system from the highest sense of vision down to touch. The Renaissance system of the senses was related with the image of the cosmic body. Vision was correlated to fire and light, hearing to air, smell to vapor, taste to water, and touch to earth. The invention of perspectival representation made the eye the center point of the perceptual world, as well as of the concept of the self. Perspectival representation itself turned into a symbolic form, one which not only describes, but also conditions perception. There's no doubt that our technological culture has ordered and separated the senses even more distinctly. Vision and hearing are now the privileged sociable senses, whereas the other three are considered as archaic sensory remnants with a merely, with a merely private function, and they're not usually suppressed by the code of culture. Only sensations such as the olfactory enjoyment of a meal, fragrance of flowers, and responses to temperature are allowed to draw collective awareness in our ocular-centric and obsessively hygienic code of culture. The dominance of vision over the other senses and the consequent bias in cognition has been observed by many philosophers. A collection of philosophical essays entitled Modernity and the Hegemony of Vision argues that beginning with the ancient Greeks, Western culture has been dominated by an ocular-centric paradigm, a vision-generated, vision-centered interpretation of knowledge, truth, and reality. This thought-provoking book analyzes historical connections between vision and knowledge, vision and ontology, vision and power, vision and ethics. Big time on the vision comparisons there. <laughs> vision, it's really the, the core, the center. It's the real deal. Well, I think we're going to see that challenge mm. Mm. shortly. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So we're getting controversial already. <laughs> A little infighting within the podcast crew here. It's going to be exciting. Stay tuned. Oh, are we, are we like each going to take a side of the senses or? I th- maybe oh, naturally. Gosh, I yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah. If I had to go anything, I'd probably go like hearing. Maybe. Mm. It's like the least. Is it the least fun? I don't know. Hearing is pretty great. Music. Hearing's pretty great. Smell. I think smell's the one that people would give up first if you had to give one up. That's yeah. a mistake. Well, no, I mean. It smells pretty good. But, but the other ones. At the same time, I would rather see. <laughs> yeah. I'd rather you taste as well. But taste is so related to smell. But let's say it's not. The thing is, smell is more valuable than taste, I think. Hmm. Mm, and maybe, like, yeah, maybe. most of the experience of enjoying food is, is through your olfactory system. Smelling right? it. Yeah. So, like, you'd just be Plus chewing the all texture. the time, but you'd smell it. See, if you didn't smell it, then you wouldn't be, like, there'd be no anticipation for eating. Mm. You wouldn't be like, hmm, that smells good, I go. But then, like, when you're eating, you would actually taste it, whereas, like, the smell one, it'd almost be like this like the worst of the best of worst worlds where you'd like you'd smell it you get really hungry and then you just eat it and be like the same gruel every day you know yeah i don't know maybe you could Pure be fooled into doing that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah i don't know i don't know can we give up other is. senses oh twofer well like i'm just wondering outside of the traditional five senses i mean we have a lot more than that oh like do you have a sixth sense that you're willing to give up no, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no 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 yeah like yeah please well, go on yeah. this conversation we're just talking about sort of the five senses well what else? there are more than five senses. yeah like like for proprio- example proprioception is the most obvious one which Wait, is like what the heck is that? so oh, that's, it's that's how you um sense your body in space hmm. through 
for example. So, like, if I told you to close your eyes and touch your nose with your hand, mm. yeah, you don't use one of your five traditional senses to do that. You know the feeling of muscles and your body oh, in space. Yeah. And that's a sense. Hmm. Mm, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I, I, Why not actually? <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, no, it's more of a debate podcast at this point. I don't know. Yeah, that's, that's something to totally think about. I, I would have to say, though, that that is like an amalgamation of touch and hearing, like your spatial sense of what you can't see when your eyes are closed. I think it's a lot to do with hearing and stuff like that. Is it not? No. I don't know. <laughs> Just like that. Just like that. It's not touch. Touch were. Touch really specifically refers to sort of that contact with skin. It doesn't, touch doesn't start at the brain and end at the skin, and that whole, like, connection between there and there isn't the sense of touch. I thought it's the whole thing, like, like I'm thinking (laughs) I I want to touch something, so I go towards it. I think you would say that sort of the skin is the organ that detects touch, whereas in proprioception, your skin doesn't, feel anything when you move your arm so much as your muscles are positioning your arm in space right okay it's not through a feeling of your skin that you know how to reach out for something and pick it up is that a sense though yes okay Okay. i'll I'll just take your word for it back to the reading (laughs) um where are we here i think so yeah shane you just read right yeah okay okay excellent as the ocular-centric paradigm of our relation to the world and our concept of knowledge, the epistemological privileging of vision has been revealed by philosophers. It is also important to survey critically the role of vision in relation to the other senses in our understanding and practice of the art and architecture. Architecture, as with all art, is fundamentally confronted with questions of human existence in space and time, It expresses and relates man's being to the world. Architecture is deeply engaged in the metaphysical question of the self and the world, interiority and exteriority, time and duration, life and death. Aesthetic and cultural practices are peculiarly susceptible to the changing experience of space and time precisely because they entail the construction of spatial representations and artifacts out of the flow of human experience, writes David Harvey. Architecture is our primary instrument in relating us with space and time and giving these dimensions a human measure. It domesticates limitless space and endless time to be tolerated, inhabited, and understood by humankind. As a consequence of this interdependence of space and time, the dialectics of external and internal space, physical and spiritual, material and mental, unconscious and conscious priorities concerning the senses as well as their relative roles and interactions interactions, have an essential impact on the nature of the arts and architecture. David Michael Levin motivates the philosophical critique of the dominance of the eye with the following words, quote, I think it is appropriate to challenge the hegemony of vision, the ocular centrism of our culture, and I think we need to examine very critically the character of vision that predominates today in our world. We urgently need a diagnosis of of the physiological pathology of everyday seeing and a critical understanding of ourselves as visionary beings. Levin points out that the autonomy, drive, and aggressiveness of vision 
and the specters of patriarchal rule that haunt our ocular-centric culture. The will to power is very strong in vision. There is a very strong tendency in vision to grasp and fixate, to reify and totalize, a tendency to dominate, secure, and control, which eventually, because it was so extensively promoted, assumed a certain uncontested hegemony over our culture and its philosophical discourse, establishing in keeping with the instrumental rationality of our culture and the technological character of our society, an ocular-centric metaphysics of presence. I believe that many aspects of the pathology of everyday architecture today can likewise be understood through an analysis of the epistemology of the senses and a critique of the ocular bias of our culture at large and of architecture in particular. The inhumanity of contemporary architecture in cities can be understood as the consequence of the negligence of body and the senses and an, an imbalance in our sensory system. The growing experiences of alienation, detachment, and solitude in the technological world today, for instance, may be re related with a certain pathology of the senses. It is thought-provoking that this sense of estrangement and detachment is often evoked by the technologically most advanced settings, such as hospitals and airports. The dominance of the eye and the suppression of the other senses tends to push us into detachment, isolation, and exteriority. The art of the eye has certainly produced imposing and thought-provoking structures, but it has not facilitated human rootedness in the world. The fact that the modernist idiom has not generally been able to penetrate the surface of popular taste and values seems to be due to its one-sided intellectual and visual emphasis. Modernist design at large has housed the intellect and the eye, but it has left the body and the other senses, as well as our memories, imagination, and dreams, homeless. Ooh, I like finishing off with homeless there. Just one of those things, you know, I like it. So on the left-hand side of the page, we've got some wonderful illustrations. I'd love to go into those with you guys. So uh, the top one looks almost like a hybrid drawing, something that we were covering this morning in rap. Yeah, so it's an eye with like a, uh, a procession leading up to the Panthenon or something like that. Something. And the, the caption says, architecture has been regarded as an art form of the eye. Ooh, and then the second picture is of a not 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 too pleased, not displeased, but just pretty much in the middle of the road person. And what's going on in that photo? It looks like somebody is holding somebody else's eye open, <laughs> like she's getting yeah. like an eye exam or something. And the oh, quote, yeah, and the, so the caption under this one is: "Vision is regarded as the most noble of the senses, and loss of eyesight." as the ultimate physical loss. Uh, yeah, so notice when we threw that question out in the round earlier, no one said, hey, I would, I would lose my sight. No. No one chose that as their least, least favorite. So no. I, could, I could believe in that even without a, uh, without a reference there. Yeah. I've so accepted so. that I'm ocular-centric. Yes, oh, you know I'm what? I'm definitely ocular-centric. <laughs> yeah. Proud, are you proud ocular-centric? Well, I don't know. I don't know. That's a big question. <laughs> I don't think I can make any public. Uh, don't don't want to make a stance on, that, on yeah. take a stance on your ocular centrism. What do you think ocular about centrity? this idea that about the technologically advanced places? Yeah. And the estrangement. There's a big. The there's a big conversation 
that, uh, well, it kind of goes back to the Jane Jacobs reading last week, where she's talking about, oh no, sorry, I was thinking about a different reading. But anyway, there's this idea that modernism was very, uh, it, it got a lot of hold post-war because of its efficiency and because of its, like, rationality. Mm-hmm. And so that made it, uh, that was a reason that it sort of flourished in under capitalism. Hmm. Um, is efficient and just like but how is that related pure, to vision elegant. like or to visual appearance? well yeah that's a good question I guess it, well it's, it's but everything you're talking about the the building of modern architecture like again the efficiency of it and like the building stuff with the least amount of parts is like the most elegant way right so like we like seeing simple straight line things yeah, or curved things or like not I, think, I shouldn't say I straight line but we like simple things what is it what it is is that we do like seeing them but we also like we also like the ornate textures of beautiful old buildings. So how is that? Hmm. We kind of cycle and back and forth. He's talking about um, hospitals and airports, which I don't think to be the most architecturally inspiring places. No. Airports. There's some new, nice new airports out there, but like. There's a lot of problems solving, though, in those places. I guess maybe, like I programmatically. Think, there's. A lot I think of what he's there. pointing at is a sort of technology driven approach hmm. which is rooted in sort of a, an efficiency driven approach which is maybe not rooted in an approach from the human scale human experience okay. Ooh, yeah, okay. which is sort of a criticism of modernism Yeah. I guess that's how I was trying to yeah. tie that together because nice. of how rational it is you're not really taking into account all these other beautiful sensory experiences hmm. sometimes that happens it's the it's the sort of the risk of uh, the diagrams like a very powerful thing it's like a double-edged sword because that kind of abstraction can be really valuable in the creative process but that level of abstraction in the built environment has the potential to like erase value yes yeah okay mm. that's something i got from Britt anderson so not from me <laughs> Woo! not out of my head no <laughs> nice uh okay the next session critics Critics of ocular centrism. Yeah, I probably don't need to hold it right against. <laughs> Sorry. If, guys. if yeah. Travis is being really loud, it's because he's holding his phone right up to his mouth, and I just, just took it away from him. Yeah, I'm just yelling into it. It's gonna be a little intense. Yeah. Travis. Okay. Uh, okay. That's perfect. Yeah. So the ocular, the ocular centric tradition and the consequent spectator theory of knowledge in Western thinking have also had their critics among philosophers already before today's concerns. Rene Descartes, for instance, regarded vision as the most universal and noble of the senses, and his uh, objectifying philosophy is consequently grounded in the privileging of vision. However, he has also equated vision with touch, a sense which he, can, which he considered to be more certain and less vulnerable to error than vision. Friedrich Nietzsche attempted to subvert the authority of ocular thinking in seeming contradiction with the general line of his thought. He criticized the eye outside of time and history, presumed by many philosophers. He even accused philosophers of a treacherous and blind hostility toward the senses. Max Scheller bluntly calls this attitude hatred of the body. The forcefully critical anti-ocular centric view of Western ocular centric perception and thinking, which developed in the 20th century French intellectual tradition, is thoroughly surveyed by Martin Jay in his book, Downcast Eyes, The Denigration of Vision in 20th Century French Thought. The writer traces the development of modern vision-centered culture 
through such diverse fields as the invention of the printing press, artificial illumination, photography, visual poetry, and the new experience of time. On the other hand, he analyzes the anti-ocular positions of many of the seminal French writers, such, such as Henri Bergson, Georges Bataille, Jean-Paul Sartre, Maurice Merleau-Ponty, Jacques Lacan, Louis Althusser, <laughs> Guy Debar, Roland Barthes, Jacques Derrida, Lucie, Luce Irigaray, Emmanuel Levinas, and Jean-Francois Lyotard. Sartre? Was Sartre. Yeah, okay. Sartre. Sartre. Was, I, was, I was glad that you got to read all those French I know, names I was like, there. Uh, do I read them in English? Do I yeah. read them in French? I'm just going to go full <laughs> on, uh, like, Texan, just speak it out letter <laughs> yeah. by letter. Yeah, and, yeah do it. <laughs> uh, so Sartre was outspokenly hostile to the sense of vision to the point of ocular phobia. Hmm? His oeuvre... Oeuvre. <laughs> work, essentially. His work has been estimated... Why would they throw that in there? Okay. His work has been <laughs> estimated to contain 7,000 references to the look. He was concerned with the objectifying look of the other and the Medusa glance, which Ooh. petrifies everything which it comes into contact with. <laughs> in his view, space has taken over time in human consciousness as the consequence of ocular centrism. This reversal of the relative significance accorded to the notions of space and time has important repercussions on the understanding of physical and historical processes. The prevailing concepts of space... Did I just move it? Is I don't... They, no, it's just still be there. I just okay, totally lost it. <laughs> the prevailing concepts of space and time and their interrelations form an essential paradigm for architecture. As Siegfried Gideon just established in his seminal ideology, ideological history of modern architecture... Space, time, and architecture. Maurice Merleau-Ponty launched a ceaseless critique of the Cartesian perspectivalist scopic regime and its privileging of an ahistorical, disinterested, disembodied subject entirely outside of the world. His entire philosophical work focuses on perception in general and, his, and vision in particular. But instead of the Cartesian eye of the outside spectator, Merleau-Ponty's sense of sight is an embodied vision that is an incarnate part of the flesh of the world. Our body is both an object among objects and that which sees and touches them. Merleau-Ponty saw an osmotic relation between the self and the world. They interpenetrate and mutually define each other. He emphasized the simultaneous simultaneity and interaction of the senses. My perception is therefore not a sum of visual, tactile, and audible givens. I perceive in a total way with my whole being. I grasp a unique structure of the thing, a unique way of being, which speaks to all my senses at once, he writes. Martin Heidegger, Michel Foucault, and Jacques Derrida have all argued that the thought and culture of modernity have not only continued the historical privilege of pri pri <laughs> privileging of sight but furthered its negative tendencies each in their own separate ways has regarded the sight dominance of the modern era as distinctly different from that of earlier times the hegemony of vision has been reinforced in our time by a multiple of technological inventions and the endless multiplication and production of images instagram you guys mm. <laughs> <laughs> An unending rainfall. Oh, just images. before you go, sorry. 
if you're on Instagram, hashtag Zillow Nation. That's the, no, that's do it. not tell people about this. Oh, what is that? <laughs> it's nothing. Uh, <laughs> just keep reading. <laughs> just keep reading. Uh, production of images. An unending rainfall of images, as Italo Calvi- Calvino calls it. The fundamental event of the modern age is the conquest of the world as picture, writes Heidegger. The philosopher's speculation has certainly materialized in our age of the fabricated, mass-produced, and manipulated image. The technologically expanded and strengthened eye today penetrates deep into matter and space and enables man to cast a simultaneous look on the opposite sides of the globe. The experience of space and time have become fused in each other by speed. Parentheses here, it says, David Harvey uses the notion of time-space compression, and as a consequence, we're witnessing a distinct reversal in the two dimensions, a temporaliz- a temporalization, <laughs> temporalization, temporalization, <laughs> so it's delicious, temporalization of space and spatialization of time. Okay, interesting. Um, <laughs> the only sense that is fast enough to keep pace with this astounding increase of speed is the technological world. In the technological world, is sight. But the world of the eye is causing us to live increasingly in perceptual pres- in the perpetual present, flattened by speed and simultaneity. Simultaneity. Visual images have become commodities, as Harvey points out. A rush of images from different spaces, almost simultaneously, collapsing the world's spaces into a series of images on a television screen. The image of places and spaces becomes as open to production and ephemeral use as any other commodity. The dramatic shattering of the inherited construction of reality in recent decades has undoubtedly resulted in a crisis of representation. We can even identify a certain panicked hysteria of representation in the arts of our time. I'm just thinking, imagine if in rap we had a project where we couldn't represent something visually. Yeah, exactly. Right? Super interesting. That that should be a thing. That should be a thing. Upper level <laughs> rep course. I know the first thing that I would do. Okay. So I really hate. Um, so start it with hate. That's a good place to. That's a good basis. <laughs> hate is the only thing that drives you. Um, no, but so like power doors. The mechanism that powers yeah. the door always yeah. results in a door that when you're using it manually is a terrible experience. Right, super heavy. Mm. Think about exhibit A, McDonald's on Spring Garden Road. <laughs> Those doors are so heavy. Yeah. It's insane. That you have to work out before you No, you gotta you gotta really earn it, which is yeah. fine, but like yeah. no. So I would I would really wanna design like a door with a really good feeling mm-hmm. or there's got to be like oh, this is I a bigger project, okay. but there's got to be a way to design that power door mechanism so that it thousand percent, yeah, you know, so that it's nice when it's not being used. In that yeah, yeah. Imagine and he is all about his door handles. Was that in this book or in the Thinking Hand where he's got all sure. these door the handles? folding leather type wrapped up? Thing. I think he looks oh, at a bunch of Alto's door handles. Alto, or something. Yeah. yeah, Alto does look a lot. I like but that yeah, idea. The feeling of the door handle itself yeah. too. Mm-hmm. I mean, man. I know wood gets can get old in weather, but but that's nice. But yeah, it characters like, those little ridges in there. Yeah. Especially in Canada, I mean, in, yeah. in the winter everything's so cold. Like, yeah. wooden door handles are mm. quite nice. Yeah, I was actually talking the other day about skinning a building. So like wrapping mm. a building in skin, like leather. 
Yeah, like, like for skin. sure, like leather. Yeah, not like skin, skin, but like, but how come we're not doing that? Or and actually, I did bring this up. So we're talking about like, uh, like teepees and stuff like that. We're all that way, right? Oh. We're uh, use skin as their skin. Yeah, because like well, you need something like that for a non-rectilinear building, kind right. of right? Yeah, so. and like it does a good job. Anyways, we're kind of. I mean, I guess I guess they're sort of uh, some kind of like more fabric, textile-based mm. structures, tent structures. Like, you just, know, tensile yeah. structures. Yeah, 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 sorry, that yeah. Kind of stuff. yeah, yeah. Um, and just thinking about those different layers, like, I wonder what it naturally occurs that is, like, mm. a vapor barrier and, like, what wicks water away and what insulates and all that sort of stuff that exists in real things. I was actually kind of, since we're kind of getting a little philosophical here, <laughs> I don't mind aggressing, <clears throat> excuse me, too much. But I was thinking this morning as I was walking here, like, how crazy is it that it's like, I'm like just this big bag of water, you know what I mean? And I, and I can move around and stuff. Like, imagine if you had a design project where they're like, is this okay, yeah, well, no, it's more like introspective, I guess. But um, yeah, imagine if we had a design challenge where it's like, okay, here's a garbage bag full of water or a, uh, you know, now make this do something, support itself and move around and get up oh. and down and, or whatever. Like, we've got a pretty amazing machine or structure in the human body like it's mm-hmm. it's figured out pretty well <laughs> like someone did a good job figured out per se well kind of i mean well, somehow it's really wet it's yeah it's yeah it's working it's got us this far we have to use a lot of technology to make ourselves survive but yeah huh. right now <laughs> okay. Back to, the Back to the reading. Okay, the next section: the narcissist and the nihilistic guy. This would be great. Um, I'm particularly going to like this one. Uh, <laughs> the hedronie of first sight uh, first brought forth glorious visions in Heidegger's view, but it has turned increasingly nihilistic in modern times. Heidegger's observation of a nihilistic eye is particularly thought-provoking today. Many of the architectural projects of the past 20 years, celebrated by international architectural press, express both narcissism and nihilism. The the hegemonic eye seeks domination over all fields of cultural production, and it seems to weaken our capacity for empathy, compassion, and participation with the world. The narcissistic eye views architecture solely as a means of self-expression and as an intellectual artistic game detached from the okay, yeah, essential yeah. mental... Okay. Sorry, hold on a second here. Oh, we're, not we're getting kicked off the lawn here. Thank you, yeah. Sorry, that's great. I've been on the lawn for so long. So, the park, the park police have just invaded the podcast. So we've got to relocate. Just over to this bench. Yeah, oh, we're just going to go to the bench. We're not going to go too far. Also, so we're kind of... Kind of like a little break here. If you need to get up, use the bathroom, do something like that, please do it. I just need to... How come those people are still on the line? Oh, really? Because they have a baby. Controversy. Babies let you do. <laughs> just one second here. Sorry, guys. Yeah, so pretty exciting. You got kicked out too? I'm with the baby. Ah. Oh, we were just saying that babies give you license to do anything. You can sell your house. <laughs> Yeah, you gotta keep the park uh, nice, I guess. Keep it locked down, something like that. I don't know. The grass looks green from here. I hope you're gonna break up the grass. Yeah, we'll refluff it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> sure. Yeah, thanks. Um, okay, so here we are on the bench. I think I should get in the middle since I don't have any computer. If that's okay, yeah. Um, 
And yeah, we'll jump right back in. You were, it was your turn there, Shane? It was. Oh, yeah, sorry. <laughs> sorry. I'm so bad with this phone. I'm just going to hold it low. <laughs> um, the narcissistic, narcissistic eye views architecture solely as a means of self-expression and as an intellectual artistic game detached from essential mental and societal con- connections. Whereas the nihilistic eye deliberately advances sensory and mental detachment and alienation. Instead of reinforcing one's body-centered and integrated experience of the world, nihilistic architecture disengages and isolates the body. And instead of attempting to reconstruct cultural order, it makes a reading of collective signification impossible. The world becomes a hedonistic but meaningless visual journey. It is clear that the only distancing and detaching sense of vision is capable of a nihilistic attitude. It is impossible to think of a nihilistic sense of touch, for instance, because of the unavoidable nearness, intimacy, veracity, and identification that the sense of touch carries. A sadistic as well as a masochistic eye also exists, and their instruments in the field of contemporary arts and architecture can also be identified. So we have a couple more images. Mm. One is the eye of the camera from the film, The Man with a Movie Camera. By Ziga Vertov. Have you seen that, Shane? No. I think I actually took an experimental film studies class once. Ah. It's like a art history credit. I th- I think that I saw that and it was weird. Really. Mm. Um, but fun fact, I made Sounds an experimental scary. film at the end instead of writing an essay. Oh, amazing! And it was actually kind of cool. But I, it, I made it on story. tape mm. and I submitted the tape and then I never got it back. So I lost my record of that oh. one time that I made a cool experimental. I was film. feeling I was feeling I was feeling a contest coming on, like a viewing contest. You know? Oh, sorry, guys. Amazing. It's I uh, lost. It's probably in the garbage somewhere. I will throw a little tidbit out there. There has been a movie made starring myself, playing myself. What? Oh, no. This is a few years is it ago. On it's up there. Oh, it's what is it there. called? We'll get into that later. Okay, okay, okay. Yeah, so Are you these pictures. I'm thinking of being John Malkovich, which is not about you. No, well, <laughs> okay. it's kind of based on that. Only well, instead of John, it's Travis. Mm. Still Malkovich, though. Okay. Yeah, it's interesting. Anyway, there's this other picture, Caravaggio, The Incredulity of St. Thomas, where there's some guys, like, poking somebody's stomach, which is funny. Oh. Anyway, um, (laughs) the current industrial mass production of visual imagery tends to alienate vision from emotional involvement and identification and to turn imagery into a mesmerizing flow without focus or participation. Michel de Sarteau perceives the expansion of the ocular realm negatively indeed. From television to newspapers, from advertising to all sorts of mercantile epiphanies, our society is characterized by cancerous growth of vision, measuring everything by its ability to show or be shown, and transmuting communication into a visual journey. The cancerous spread of superficial architectural imagery today devoid of tectonic logic and a sense of materiality and empathy is clearly part of this process. So is cancer just like a negative term there or are they using that as like this kind of unstoppable <laughs> growing thing? You I know? think like, negative unstoppable growing thing. Okay. I, <laughs> like I didn't that's see... going to kill us. <laughs> right. Okay. okay. Sorry. I just, if uh, you have another interpretation. Of cancer. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, it's, it's interesting. Um, it's a thing too. <laughs> Next section, oral versus visual space. I get to start all these out. Um, b- 
But man has not always been dominated by vision. In fact, a primordial dominance of hearing has only gradually been replaced by that of vision. Anthropological literature describes numerous cultures in which our private senses of smell, taste, and touch continue to have collective importance in behavior and communication. The roles of the senses in the utilization of collective and personal space in various cultures was the subject matter of Edward T. Hall's seminal book, The Hidden Dimension, <laughs> which regrettably uh, seems to have been forgotten by architects. Hall's proxemic studies of personal space offer important insights into instinctual and unconscious aspects of our relation to space and our unconscious use of space in behavioral communication. Hall's insight can serve as the basis for the design of intimate, bioculturally functional spaces. Walter J. Ong analyzes the transition from oral to written culture and its impact on human consciousness and the sense of the collective in his book, Orality and Literacy. He points out that the shift from oral to written speech was essentially a shift from sound to visual space, and that print replaced the lingering hearing dominance in the world of thought and, and expression with the sight dominance which had its beginning in writing. In Ong's view, this is an, insist this is an insistent world of cold, non-human facts. Ong analyzes the challenges that the shift from the primordial oral culture to the culture of the written and eventually the printed word has caused on human consciousness, memory, and understanding of space. He argues that as hearing dominance has yielded to sight dominance, situational thinking has been replaced by abstract thinking. This fundamental change in the perception and understanding of the world seems irreversible to the writer. The words are grounded in oral speech, Writing tyrannically locks them into a visual field forever. A literate person cannot fully recover a sense of what the word is to, to purely oral people. In fact, the unchallenged hegemony of the eye may be a fairly recent phenomenon regardless of its origins in Greek thought and optics. In Lucien Febvre's view, the 16th quote, the 16th century did not see first. It heard and smelt it sniffed the air and caught sounds. It was only later that it seriously and actively became engaged in geometry, focusing attention on the world of forms of Kepler from 1571 to 1630. The Desarg and, and Desarg. Desarg of Lyon, 1593 to 1662. And it was then that vision was unleashed in the world of science as it was in the world of physical sensations and the world of beauty as well. In 42, or it says 42, just apostrophe 42, 42, Robert Mandrew. <laughs> Maybe it's supposed to be a... Is that, hold on, is that a full name? Is that supposed to be a footnote thing. Oh, okay. I was like... But they forgot to... Oh, it's it's it large. Oh, yeah. yeah, see, I saw this as like, maybe this was someone who had a number in their name, like 42 <laughs> Robert Mandrew. I came very close to having the number five in my name. <laughs> very close, yeah. Are you serious? Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I talked to me your <laughs> Robert Mandrew makes a parallel argument. The hierarchy of the senses was not the same as in the 20th century because the eye which rules today found itself in third place behind hearing and touch and far after them the eye that organizes classifies and orders was not favorite organ of the time that preferred hearing the gradually growing hegemony of the eye seems to be parallel with the development of western ego consciousness and the gradually increasing separation of the self and the world vision separates us from the world whereas the other senses unite us with it 
Artistic expression is engaged with pre-verbal meanings of the world, meanings that are incorporated and lived rather than simply intellectually understood. In my view, poetry has the capacity of bringing us momentarily back to the oral and enveloping world. The re-oralized word of poetry brings us back to the center of an interior world. The poet speaks on the threshold of being, as Gaston Bachelard notes, but it also takes place at the threshold of language. Equally, the task of art and architecture in general is to reconstruct the experience of an undifferentiated interior world in which we are not mere spectators, but to which we inseparably belong. In artistic works, existential understandings arise from our very encounter with the world and our being in the world. It is not conceptualized or intellectualized. Hmm. No comment, next section. <laughs> Retinal architecture and the loss of plasticity. It is evident that the architecture... Sorry, okay, sorry about the phone again. It is evident that the architectural of, transition, of traditional cultures is also essentially connected with the tacit wisdom of the body. Instead of being visually and conceptually dominated, construction in traditional cultures is guided by the body in the same way that a bird shapes its nest by, moments, by movements of its body. I didn't know that, so that's how they like scoot it out. Oh, it's always like they make the perfect fit. Yeah, I guess so. Um, indigenous clay and mud architecture in various parts of the world seem to be born of the muscular and haptic senses more than the eye. We can even identify the transition of indigenous construction from the haptic realm into the control of vision as a loss of plasticity and intimacy and of the sense of total fusion characteristics in the settings of indigenous cultures. The dominance of the sense of vision pointed out in philosophical thought is equally evident in the development of Western architecture. Greek architecture, with its elaborate systems of optical corrections, was already ultimately refined for the pleasure of the eye. However, the privileging of sight does not necessarily imply a rejection of the other senses, as the haptic sensibility, materiality, and authoritative weight of Greek architecture prove. The eye invites and stimulates muscular and tactile sensations. The sense of sight may incorporate and even reinforce other sense modalities. The unconscious tactile ingredient in vision is particularly important and strongly present in historical architecture, but badly neglected in the architecture of our time. Western architectural theory since Leon Battista Alberti has been primarily engaged with questions of visual perception, harmony, and proportion. Alberti's statement that painting is nothing but the intersection of the visual pyramid following a given distance, a fixed center, and a certain lighting, outlines the perspectival paradigm which also became the instrument of architectural thinking. Again, it has been emphasized that the conscious focusing of the mechanics of vision did not automatically result in the decisive and deliberate rejection of other senses before our own era of the omnipresent visual image. The eye conquers its hegemonic role in architectural practice, both consciously and unconsciously, only gradually with the emergence of the idea of bodiless observer. The observer becomes a detachment, becomes detached from an incarnate relation with the environment through the suppression of the other senses, in particular by means of technological extensions of the eye and the proliferation of images. As Marx W. Wartofsky argues, the human vision is itself an artifact, produced by other artifacts, namely pictures. The dominant sense of vision figures strongly in the writings of modernists. 
statements by Le Corbusier, such as, quote, I exist in life only if I can see, or I am and I remain an impenitent visual. Impenitent? Yeah? Impenitent. Impenitent? I don't know Any clue that. on impenitent? Uh, no. Okay, well. Dictionary? <laughs> again, I am and I remain an impenitent visual. Everything is in the visual. That's much deeper than I'm understanding right now. Um, and then again, one needs to see clearly in order to understand. I urge you to open your eyes. Do you open your eyes? <laughs> Are you trained to open your eyes? Do you know how to open your eyes? Do you open them often, always, and well? Good questions. Uh, is this another quote here again? Yeah, just, just nothing but Corbusier quotes. This is one of my favorite. Uh, Man looks at, create, at the creation of architecture with his eyes and are five feet six inches from the ground. And architecture is a plastic thing. I mean by plastic. Sorry, this is a quote within a quote in quotations. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> There's a lot of, a lot of uh, apostrophes going on here. I mean by plastic what is seen and measured by the eyes. Making, make the privileging of the eye in early modernist theory very clear. Further declarations by Walter Gropius... Quote, he, <laughs> sorry, the designer has an adapt knowledge of the scientific facts of optics, and thus, of optics and thus obtain a theoretical ground that will guide the hand, giving shape and create an objective basis. And by Laszlo Maholi Nagy? Nagy? I think it's pronounced. It's a rough break. Um, <laughs> the hygiene of the optical, the health of the visible is slowly filtering through. Confirm the central role of vision in modernist thought. Le Corbusier's famous credo, architecture is the masterly, correct, and magnificent play of masses brought together in light, unquestionably defines an architecture of the eye. Le Corbusier, however, was a great artistic talent with a molding hand and a tremendous sense of materiality, plasticity, and gravity, all of which prevented his architecture from turning into sensory reductivism. Regardless of Le Corbusier's Cartesian ocular-centric exclamations, the hand had a similar fetishistic role in his work as the eye. A vigorous element of tactility is present in Le Corbusier's sketches and paintings, and this haptic sensibility is incorporated into his regard for architecture. However, the reductive bias becomes devastating in his urbanistic projects. In Mies van der Rohe's architecture, a frontal perspective, perspectival perception predominates. But his unique sense of order, structure, weight, detail, and craft decisively enriches the visual paradigm. Moreover, an architectural work is great precisely because of the oppositional and contradictory intentions and illusions it succeeds in fusing together. A tension between conscious intentions and unconscious drives is necessary for a work in order to open up the emotional participation of the observer. In every case, one must achieve a simultaneous solution of opposites, as Alvaralto wrote. The verbal statements of artists and architects should not usually be taken at their face value, as they often merely represent a conscious surface, rationalization, or defense that may well be in sharp contradiction with the deeper unconscious intentions giving the world its very life force. With equal clarity, <coughs> sorry, with equal clarity, the vision paradigm, or the visual paradigm, is the prevailing condition in city planning, from the idealized town plans of the Renaissance to the functionalist principles of zoning and planning that reflect the hygiene of the optical. 
In particular, the contemporary city is increasingly the city of the eye, detached from the body by rapid motorized movement and th or through the overall aerial grasp from an airplane. The processes of planning have favored the idealizing and disembodied Cartesian eye of control and detachment. City plans are highly idealized and schematized visions seen through Lagarde sur Blanc, or the look from above, as designed by Jean Starobinsky Strabinsky? and through the mind's eye of Plato. Until recently, architectural theory and criticism have been almost exclusively engaged with the mechanisms of vision and visual expression. The perception and experience of architectural form has most frequently been analyzed through the gestalt laws of visual perception. Educational philosophy has likewise understood architecture primarily in terms of vision, emphasizing the construction of three-dimensional visual images in space. The next section. You don't get to say it this time. It's oh, my turn. I was just so excited to like to. to uh, <laughs> sorry for being so loud. Sorry for being so loud. <laughs> An architecture of visual images. The ocular bias has never been more apparent in the art of architecture than in the past 30 years. As a type of architecture aimed at a striking and memorable visual image has predominated. Instead of an existentially grounded plastic and spatial experience, architecture has adopted the psychological strategy of advertising and instant persuasion. Buildings have turned into image products, products detached from existential depth and sincerity. David Harley, Harvey relates the loss of temporality and the search for instantaneous impact in contemporary expression to the loss of experiential depth. Frederick Jameson, Jameson uses the notion of contrived depthlessness to describe the contemporary culture condition and its fixation with appearances, services, and instant impacts that have no sustaining power over time. As a consequence of the current deluge of images, architecture of our time often appears as mere retinal art of the eye, thus completing an epistemological cycle that began in Greek thought and architecture. But the change goes beyond mere visual dominance. Instead of being a situational bodily encounter, architecture has become an art of the printed image fixed by the hurried eye of the camera. In our culture of pictures, the gaze itself flattens into a picture and loses its plasticity. Instead of experiencing our being in the world, we behold it from outside as spectators of images projected on the surface of the retina. David Michael Levin uses the term frontal ontology to describe the prevailing frontal fixated and focused vision. Susan Sontag has made perceptive remarks on the role of photographed image in our perception of the world. She writes, for instance, of a mentality which looks at the world as a set of potential photographs and argues that the reality has come to seem more and more what we are shown by camera and that the omnipresence of photographs has an incalculable effect on our ethical sensibility. By furnishing this already crowded world with a duplicate one of images, photography makes us feel that the world is more available, available than it really is. As buildings lose their plasticity, plasticity and their connection with the language of, and wisdom of the body, they become isolated in the cool and distant realm of vision. With this loss of tactility measures the details crafted for the human body, and particularly for the hand. Architectural structures become repulsively flat, sharp-edged, immaterial, and unreal. 
that's that would be how I would describe my current design project. <laughs> Same. Yeah. Repulsively flat. Yeah. It's, it's definitely sharp edge. Yeah, it. yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's got some sharp edges. Um the detachment of construction, thank you, uh, from the realities of matter and craft further turn architecture into stage sets for the eye, into a scenography devoid of the authenticity of matter and construction. The sense of aura, the authority of presence that Walter Benjamin regards as a necessary quality for an authentic piece of art, has been lost. Shout out to Radio Benjamin. Our old friend Walter. <laughs> yeah. uh, these products of instrumentalized technology conceal their processes of construction, appearing as ghost-like apparitions. Yeah. The increasing <laughs> use of reflective glass in architecture reinforces the dreamlike sense of unreality and alienation. The contra- contradictory, opaque transparency of these buildings reflects the gaze back unaffected and unmoved. We are unable to see or imagine life behind these walls. The architectural mirror that returns our gaze and doubles the world is enigmatic and frightening device unless you're a narcissist and just love mirrors <laughs> you know that's, that's an interesting comment though yeah i feel like we often in architecture school we're like oh the the transparency or the opacity or whatever Perosity. but really like in the daytime it's reflecting you can't no, that's see ex- into that's something building. that i've been somebody's been pushing me to use in my design Somebody, like, glass yeah <laughs> yeah in, in this i i don't know but yeah the implication that glass actually is this no, like, an incredibly transparent night. thing in architecture isn't always true and at night it's almost more of a voyeuristic thing because mm. you can't if it's dark outside you can't see who's looking in at you right yeah. creepy hmm. creepy yeah glass seems to be kind of one of these old dogs that's still kicking around we are no, finding better place. ways of, it has its place of course <clears throat> yeah but I mean, what I guess I'm getting at there is that like it's heavy it's um, you know it's obviously incredibly fragile it's not very um, you know insulative that sort of thing right so I think we'll find a better glass soon enough Screams. out the glass <laughs> yeah oh well in that um, was it in that free lab presentation they were talking about ceramics these highly insulating ceramic things mm-hmm. Y'all know I love ceramics. So mm. That sounds cool. I'm into ceramic brake pads, car parts, yeah. ceramic stuff. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Interesting. <laughs> okay. Ceramic yeah, yeah, yeah. It's the good stuff. Um, just as well, just to share my own personal sense here to the podcast, I'm looking across the pond here at, I don't know if you guys have seen this, but is that the Titanic I'm looking at over there? It's a model of the Titanic. Well, yeah. Okay. I'm guessing, yeah. The but... Titanic is somewhere else. <laughs> Close by, though. On the ocean floor? I wonder if that has to do... Yeah, I wonder if this has to do... I was just thinking. It's like, you know, iceberg. Those right ahead. Ducks, you know, actually. Ducks. So many ducks. I wish, you, I wish you were all here with us. It's a wonderful day. That would be too many people, actually. But imagine how quickly we would get done the reading. <laughs> I don't know if that would really be more... Everybody takes a word? Everybody takes a syllable? <laughs> oh, it's so Speaking amazing. Of. Yeah. Whose turn is it? Mine. Materiality and time. The flatness of today's standard construction is strengthened by a weakened sense of materiality. Natural materials, stone, brick, and wood, allow our vision to penetrate their surfaces and enable us to become convinced of the veracity of matter. Natural materials express their age and history, as well as the story of their origins and their history of human use. All matter exists in the continuum of time. The patina of wear adds an enriching experience of time to the materials of construction. But the machine-made materials of today, 
scaleless sheets of glass, enameled metals, and synthetic plastics tend to present their unyielding surfaces to the eye without conveying their material essence or age. Buildings of this technological age usually deliberately aim at ageless perfection, and they do not incorporate the dimension of time or the unavoidable and materially significant process of aging. This fear of the traces of wear and age is related to our fear of death. Mm. Mm. If you're afraid to die. <laughs> I think most people I don't are just... think you're afraid to die, are you? No, you know what? I'm ready. Uh, it's like most people... Go back to V1. Yeah. You know, cemetery response. Yeah, exactly. It's like... Uh, wait, yeah. wait, what was your response again? Patch Leone reflect. You're oh, literally. Yeah, I used reflections. You feel like you're dying. Yeah, it's like you could be, you could be dead, but alive to celebrate life. It's like this is what it feels like to be dead. You know, it's uh, yeah. I mean, most people are afraid to die, like scared to live. Yeah. I'm ready to die. You know, ready? anytime, anytime, ready to go. Okay. Like living the life yeah. full. You know. Well, yeah. it's like a Taurus Big quote, so I'm not really oh, my. Uh, yeah. Sorry. <laughs> sorry. To everyone here and to everyone. Yeah, sorry. Okay. <laughs> Speaking of stories, I'll continue with these things. It gets closer and closer. Come, come, come. Yeah. Okay. Um, transparency and sensation. Take it, Andrew. <laughs> and sensations of weightlessness and flotation are central themes in modern art and architecture. In recent decades, a new architectural imagery has emerged which employs reflection, gradations of transparency, overlay and juxtaposition to create a sense of spatial thickness as well as subtle and changing sensations of movement and light. This new sensibility promises an architecture that can turn the relative immaterial, immateriality and weightlessness of recent technological construction into a positive experience of space, place and meaning. The weakening of the experience of time in today's environments has devastating mental effects. In the words of the American therapist Gothard Booth, nothing gives man fuller satisfaction than participation in processes that supersede the span of individual life. We have a mental need to grasp that we are rooted in the continuity of time and that the man-made world, it is the task of architecture to facilitate this experience. Architecture domesticates limitless space and enables us to inhabit it, but it should be likewise domesticate endless time and enable us to inhabit the continuum of time. The current overemphasis on the intellectual and conceptual dimensions of architecture contributes to the disappearance of its physical, sensual, and embodied essence. Contemporary architecture posing as the avant-garde is more often engaged with the architectural discourse itself and mapping the possible marginal territories of the art than responding to, the, to human existential questions. This reductive focus gives rise to a sense of architectural autism, an internalized and autonomous discourse that is not grounded in our shared existential reality. So do we understand autism enough to use it as like a reference? Sense of mm, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I'm not sure okay. what he means no. by that. I'm just kind of curious. I'm not like jumping on something because I heard a term, but it's yeah. just like, that seems a little bit difficult to grasp at all i don't know anyways it's also yeah this book's also from 20 years ago mm. so like the way that particular word is used may or may not be yeah be even more we use it. diluted yeah. then yeah i don't know strange okay so we've got some pictures here mm -hmm. we have one of some distant buildings and it says the contemporary city is the city of the eye one of distance and exteriority Ooh. and then we have 
uh, sort of an old, I don't know, Italian mountain town, something like that. Mm, Spain. Oh, southern Spain, yeah. The haptic city is the city of interiority and nearness. Mm. So, yeah. Head up on the hill. Talking about the human scale, I guess. I like it. Beyond architecture, contemporary culture at large at large drifts toward a distancing, a kind of chilling desensualization and de-eroticization of the human relation to reality. Painting and sculpture also seem to be losing their sensuality instead of inviting a sensory intimacy. Contemporary works of art frequently signal a distancing rejection of sensuous curiosity and pleasure. These works of art speak to the intellect and to the conceptualizing capacities instead of addressing the senses and the undifferentiated embodied responses. The ceaseless bombardment of unrelated imagery leads only to a gradual emptying of images of their emotional content. Images are converted into endless commodities manufactured to postpone boredom. Humans in turn are commodified, consuming themselves nonchalantly without having the courage or even the possibility of confronting their very existential reality. We are made to live in a fabricated dream world. I do not wish to express a conservative view of contemporary art in the tone of Hans Settlemeyer's thought-provoking but disturbing book, Art in Crisis. I merely suggest that a distinct change has occurred in our sensory and perceptual experience of the world, one that is reflected by art and architecture. If we desire architecture to have an emancipating or healing role, emaciate, oh yeah, no, it's emancipating, Instead of reinforcing the erosion of existential meaning, we must reflect on the multitude of secret ways in which the art of architecture is tied to the cultural and mental reality of its time. We should also be aware of the ways in which the feasibility of architecture is being threatened or marginalized by current political, cultural, economic, cognitive, and perceptual developments. Architecture has become an endangered art form. The rejection of Alberti's win- window. The eye itself is not, of course, remained in the monocular, fixed construction defined by Renaissance theories of perspective. The hegemonic eye has conquered new ground for visual perception and expression. The paintings of Hieronymus Bosch and Peter Bruegel, for, for instance, already invite a participatory eye to travel across the scenes of multiple events. 17th century Dutch paintings of bourgeois life present casual scenes and objects of everyday use, which expand beyond the boundaries of the Albertian window. Baroque paintings open up vision with hazy edges, soft focus, and multiple perspectives, presenting a distinct tactile invitation and enticing the body to travel through the illusory space. An essential line in the evolution of modernity has been the liberation of the eye from the Cartesian perspectival epistemology. The paintings of Joseph Millard William Turner continue the elimination of the picture frame and the vantage point begun in the Baroque era. The Impressionists abandoned the boundary line, balanced framing and perspectival depth. Paul Cezanne aspires to make visible how the world touches us. Cubists abandon the single focal point, reactivate peripheral vision and reinforce haptic experience whereas the color field painters reject illusory depth in order to reinforce the presence of the painting itself as an iconic art artifact and an autonomous reality. Land artists fuse the reality of the work with the reality of the lived world, 
And finally, artists such as Richard Serra directly address the lived world. Oh, sorry. Artists such as Richard Serra directly address the body, as well as our experiences of horizontality and verticality, materiality, gravity, and weight. The same countercurrent against the hegemony of the, percep- of the perspectival eye has taken place in modern architecture regardless of the culturally privileged position of vision. The kinesthetic and textural architecture of Frank Lloyd Wright, the muscular and tactile buildings of Aralto, and Louis Kahn's architecture of geometry and gravitas are particularly significant examples of this. This is... that's an interesting thing to talk about. Do you have anything to say about that? Do you have anything to say about that? Oh, I don't know. (laughs) Kinesthetic and textural architecture? hmm. Yeah... I don't know. That seems I to have to like soak that in a little, yeah. Well, it's, back to what you were talking about, like your body moving through space. Yeah. Yeah, I think, you know, like I, I spend a lot of time talking about all these sort of bad things that, that modernism did. And sometimes we think of these people as being modernists, which they sort of were. But mm. like, but, uh, there's, like there's very novel. good modernism and, and uh, maybe modernism that. Well, you even said it in here that, like, Corbusier's city planning is not... Right. <laughs> that didn't work out so well. We'll bring out... Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I don't know. I, see, I have such a hard time disliking anything that it's uh, difficult for me to, yeah, put a negative light on any of these moves. Like, something that's right at that time is right. Same way that things are wrong at a time, even though if they're considered right later, they're still wrong at the time. Like. You can have to stay in jail if you sold a bunch of weed when it was illegal. Even though weed's legalized now, it's like you still have to stay in jail because you broke the law at that time, that sort of a thing. It's like, I really believe that um, culture moves so quickly and we put all these sort of like gates of uh, progression along the way and we're putting them closer and closer and closer together. And so as we rewind back, it's easy to think that like, oh, that was so awful and all these things and how can we even think like that? But those gates now are like you know um so like for instance i was trying to figure out what was cool 18 months ago and try and like bring back <laughs> stuff because that's like that's the cycle now that's like retro or vintage you know it's like just ironic cool it's like 18 months instead of like 10 years or 30 years what or was cool 18 months ago oh we were just uh it's like there's some adele song was uh, really happening then adele was she ever really yeah, Sorry. I guess so. This is like, yeah, yeah. Uh, this is, yeah, these are like top tracks. Um, yeah, it's like, I noticed stuff I was doing myself 18 months ago. I started doing that again, but um, yeah, I can't remember exactly, but it was just so long, so far in the past. It's so long ago. <laughs> it's, uh, such a different world now. It's hard to really even tell, you know? But I mean, but especially attitudes towards a lot of things in pop culture. Yeah. Yeah, I find that sort of, that sort of a thing. Like, and another thing, just to keep on going. Um, cars especially and things like that in between like let's say 2000 and 2010 Mm -hmm. there's such a rush for uh technological improvements Mm -hmm. that i don't know what they are but i have a feeling there's things that got skipped over in like 2004 2005 just because they weren't 2006 or 2007 and i'd like to kind of go back into that and and kind of explored a little bit. So you think there's some valuable things that got skipped over is what you're saying? Yeah, like, yeah, it just got passed over for, um, you know, I don't know, OLEDs versus LEDs versus LCDs versus plasma screen TVs, you know, like all those things. Not like I think any of those, like any of those, but I mean, but there's an example of a really quick change in, in stuff where you would never even consider 
uh, like a plasma screen TV anymore or whatever. Maybe we should or... try to bring back the mini disc. Yeah, you know, I was I was a devout mini disc <laughs> user. Last, yeah, last of yeah, yeah. I loved I loved my mini disc. It was the best. No, no. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And the quality was so good. Like, oh, was this, it? This is a different podcast altogether. If we're gonna start talking mini disc. I mean, mini disc player too. But, yeah, uh, yeah. But no, it was great. It's great. No, keep Some on skateboarding. For a reason. No skipping. Yeah, lots of people still record on mini disc. Good for them. Yeah, because it's just like it's just too good. Just too good. Anyways, Where do you even get a mini disc? Japan, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> okay. Don't Anyways, know. we gotta crank this. They've yeah, got people. My battery is almost dead. And I have, I have a laser like cutter. As it is. Last section. Nice. A new vision and sensory balance, perhaps freed of the implicit desire for the eye to control and power. It is precisely the unfocused vision of our time that is again capable of opening up new realms of vision and thought. The loss of focus brought about by the stream of images may emancipate the eye from its patriarchal domination and give rise to a participatory and empathetic gaze. The technological extensions of the senses have until now reinforced the primacy of vision, but the new technologies may also help the body to dethrone and dis- the disinterested gaze of the disincarnated Cartesian spectator. Martin J. remarks, in opposition to the lucid, linear, solid, fixed, planimetric, closed form of the Renaissance, the Baroque was painterly, recessional, soft-focused, multiple, and open. He also argues that the Baroque visual experience has a strong tactile or haptic quality, which prevents it from turning into the absolute ocular centrism of the Cartesian perspectivalist rival. The haptic experience seems to be penetrating the ocular regime again through the tactile presence of modern visual imagery. In a music video, for instance, or the layered contemporary urban transparency, we cannot halt the flow of images for analytic observation. Instead, we have to appreciate it as an enhanced haptic sensation, rather like a swimmer senses the flow of water against his or her skin. In his thorough and thought-provoking book, The Opening of Vision, Nihilism in the Postmodern Situation, David Michael Levin differentiates between two modes of vision, the assertoric gaze and the... uh, Athletic. Yeah, it's like the worst way to spell athletic. (laughs) Don't say athletic. Now I'm confused. (laughs) Alethic? That's what we're... Alethic? Alethic. And the alethic gaze. In his view, the assertoric gaze is narrow, dogmatic, intolerant, rigid, fixed, inflexible, exclusionary, and unmoved. Whereas the alethic gaze, associated with the hermeneutic theory of truth, tends to see from a multiplicity of standpoints and perspectives, and is multiple, pluralistic, democratic, contextual, inclusionary, horizontal, and caring. As suggested by Levin, there are signs that a new mode of looking is emerging. Although the new technologies have strengthened the hegemony of vision, they may also help to rebalance the realms of the senses. In Walter Ong's view, with telephone, radio, television, and various kinds of sound tape, Electronic technology has brought us into the age of secondary orality. This new orality has striking resemblances to the old in its participatory mystique, its fostering of communal sense, its concentration on the present moment. Quote, we in the Western world are beginning to discover our neglected senses. This growing awareness represents something of an overdue insurgency against the painful deprivation of sensory experience we have suffered in the technological world writes the anthropologist Ashley Montague. 
This new awareness is forcefully projected by numerous architects around the world today who are attempting to re-centralize architecture through a strengthened sense of materiality and hapsicity, texture, weight, and density of space, and materialized light. It's beautiful. It's wow. very nice. It's really beautiful, yeah. I like that. So, that's it. That's it. We've got to go. Shane, thank you for joining. Again. Ghost of Magic again. Uh, please, this it's open invitation. Anytime. Wow. Yeah, anytime. Yeah. And if you want to take on doing the rep readings for us, oh. you're more than welcome. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That would be kind of fun. Yeah, sounds good. Until then, I'm Travis Cook Young. I'm Andrea Sitlow. Shane Hauser. <laughs> so enthusiastic. <laughs> yeah, oh, go ahead. Bye. <laughs>